Well, on Wednesday of this past uh, week, I stopped by the Panera, uh, just down on uh, Randall Road, south of the church, you know what I'm talking about, to pick up some lunch. I'd been in meetings uh, most of the morning and uh, was on my way home to work on this sermon, so I stopped by to pick up some lunch. And I had to go through the drive-thru. And as I went through the drive-thru, uh, I made my order. Then there was a pretty good line of cars, so I had to wait my turn to pick up my order. Um, and as I waited, I noticed that the car right in front of me looked like it had a Chapel Street sticker on the back window, just our, our, little, our little logo. Um, and I wondered if I knew. And I was trying to get a view. Who is it? Do I know that person? But I couldn't get a good view, didn't, so I didn't recognize them. And uh, they, this guy, it was a man, I could tell, picked up his order, and I got to my turn. I took out my credit card, put it out through the window, and the attendant said, oh, the guy in front of you paid for your order. And so I took my lunch from the guy, and I tried to look and see if I could see the guy in front so I could thank him, but he was gone already. So I looked at my rearview mirror to see if there was anyone behind me so I could, like, maybe pass on the generosity by buying their lunch, but there was nobody behind me. So I just drove off with my free lunch. But I thought about that later. It was just a kind, uh, simple gesture of generosity, but I thought later, what, what makes someone do that spontaneously? Maybe he recognized me, uh, through, the, through his rearview mirror. Oh, that's Pastor Brian. Maybe he didn't. Maybe it was just a random decision he made. But where does it come from? Where does generosity come from? And where does it begin? Now, we're in a series right now called The Way, and we're looking into God's Word to see how uh, the very first followers of Jesus, who were called people of the way, how they lived, uh, what they believed, what made them so different in the ancient world, and what we can learn from them. And so far, we've talked about things like the way of abiding, Jesus said, abide in me, I'm the vine, you are the branches. We looked at the, the way of love and fellowship. We looked at the way of service. Last week, uh, last week, we looked at the way of service. And today, we're looking at the way of generosity. And today, we're going to look into a, a little paragraph in Acts chapter 4. But let me give you a little context before we read the, the passage for today. The passage we read today takes place uh, in, the, in the first few weeks or months following the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the community called the Way is exploding in numbers. If you read through the book of Acts, we're told in Acts 2 that 3,000 people were added to their number in one day. And then we're told in Acts 3 there's a story of a miraculous healing of a man, a lame man who's begging at the temple, and Peter uh, heals him, or he's healed through Peter. And then in Acts 4 we're told that the number of men has swelled to 5,000. That's just the men. So if you add in the women and children and young people, scholars believe the total number within a couple of months now is between 10 and 20,000 new followers of Jesus. And of course, this creates great concern among those who had opposed Jesus, his enemies, and we see the first crisis develop in this movement called the way, the first crisis of the church, because we're told in Acts 4 that the priests temple guard, and the Sadducees arrest Peter and John and demand that they stop preaching about Jesus. But these two men, who are filled with the Holy Spirit and boldness, respectfully refuse to stop. And if you've read the story, it's beautiful. They say, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. But the religious officials are afraid to keep them under arrest, afraid to uh, keep, hold them in prison, because of all the, the, this growing number of people of the way, so they let him go, and all the believers gather together for, to celebrate in worship and prayer. And here's where we pick up Acts 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, 
the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And that leads us to the passage we look at today, the very next verse, Acts 4, 32. And you can look on the screens and follow with me. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, if you've noticed, the title of this message in this series, which is part six, um, is called The Way of Generosity. But it doesn't start out where you think it would start. Uh, This passage doesn't start out with talking about our money. It doesn't even start with, by talking about generosity at all. It starts with what I'm calling the way of unity. That's the first thing we see today, the way of unity. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Lorene and I went to see the musical production, Fiddler on the Roof, at the Lyric Opera in Chicago. It was part of my birthday gift to her uh, back in August. Now, I'm not the, you know, a connoisseur of musical productions, not the biggest fan, but Every time we go to something like that, I'm, I'm, I'm just blown away by the talent. It was spectacular. The story is classic. Uh, we knew many more of the songs and, and pieces than we thought we did. Uh, the actors' voices were amazing. The choreography and dancing were entertaining. Uh, but the whole production was driven by the orchestra. The orchestra that you don't see because it's down in the orchestra pit. Uh, between 80 and 100 musicians playing some 44 different instruments, all of which are made from different materials, are shaped differently, and make different sounds. There are violins. I don't know how many of them are. Probably 20 or, I don't know, a lot of violins. Uh, There are bassoons. There are piccolos. Okay. And many, many more strings and horns and percussion instruments. But together... Under the guidance of a conductor and following the same score, they produce beautiful and powerful music that drives the whole show. My point is they are all different. They make different sounds, but they are unified. Verse 32 says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. One heart and soul. Now I mentioned that this is now a very large group of people. Uh, The phrase full number here in English is actually one word in the ancient Greek, plethos, for which we get our word plethora. It means throng, multitude, great crowd. And like a great orchestra, they are unified because they're all following the guidance of a conductor and they're all following a, a same score. Now, we know from what Luke has already told us that the conductor is actually the Holy Spirit. Jesus had promised in Acts chapter 1 that the Holy Spirit would come with power. Uh, The Holy Spirit has come on the day of Pentecost and filled them with great boldness. So that's the conductor of the whole thing, the Holy Spirit of God. And then we see the score is actually the gospel because we're told earlier in Acts 2 that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were also devoted to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer, but they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, it's important to see here that unity 
in the New Testament is not the same thing as conformity. Unity is not the same thing as conformity. Most of these early believers were Jews, Jewish background, but not all. Some were proselytes, came from other, other ethnic groups, uh, from Samaria, or they were Greeks. Some were, uh, most of them were lower economic class, but not all of them. Some of them were wealthy. Uh, there were men and women, young and old. The early church was, very, was diverse in many ways, and it would become more and more diverse as the gospel began to spread out throughout the ancient uh, Gentile world. But they were of one heart and one soul. Later in the New Testament, we see uh, in the church in Corinth uh, developing um, sort of uh, uh, factions developing in the church. Uh, they were beginning to argue about who their favorite teachers were. Some would say, you know, I, I, I prefer Paul. Some say, I prefer Apollos. Some just said, I, 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 I follow Jesus. Some preferred Peter. They were arguing about who their favorite teachers were. It'd be like here at Chapel Street, arguing about which preacher you like best. You don't have to tell me. <laughs> but Paul confronts this division. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. And I believe, from my perspective, that one of the great strengths of Chapel Street over the years has been that we seek to be unified in the essentials of our faith, rather than argue about the non-essentials of our faith or the non-essentials of practicing our faith. And that's a very important thing. We hear stories all the time about churches that split and divide over things that are not the center of the gospel. So we are all different. Some are violins. Some are bassoons. Some are piccolos. I'll let you decide what you are. But we're all different. We all make different sounds. But we're united in heart and soul by the conductor, the Holy Spirit, and by the score, which is the teaching of the apostles, the gospel. So this is the way, begins with the way of unity. And the second thing I see in this passage is the way of sharing. The way of sharing. Uh, as most of you know, Lorena and I um, are now grandparents. We have two granddaughters, Emery, who is just a little over two. And she now has a little sister named Eden, and she's just four months. And now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, just another shameless way to brag about my grandchildren. Uh-huh. And when you stand up here, you can do the same thing, right? <laughs> but like most two-year-olds, Emery has already learned the concept of mine. Mine. She knows the word. She knows what it means. But with the advent of a little sister, she's having to learn a different concept, the concept of sharing. Now, sharing is much more difficult. As parents, we don't have to, and if you're a parent, you know this, we don't have to teach the idea of mine to children. They seem born with the capacity to understand mine, ownership, right? But we do have to teach sharing. You ever wonder why that is? Because I think sharing cuts counter to our selfish human nature. Even in little children, you see it. Mine is ownership. Sharing is the opposite of ownership. Verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. They had everything in common they were sharing. Why? Because no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. 
Now, it's important to point out that this verse is not saying that ownership is bad or somehow wrong, that we should not have possessions. In fact, I kind of think you have to know what mine is before you know what sharing is. I think you kind of have to know what ownership is before you know what sharing is. Now, this is not a kind of Christian communism. Uh, this is koinonia. Remember that great Greek word from a couple of weeks ago? It means fellowship. The idea of the, the political ideology of communism is what's yours is mine. Koinonia is what's mine is yours. And there's a huge difference between the two. This verse is simply describing a community of people that had a radically different attitude toward their possessions. I, I heard a, a pastor once when he was speaking on the topic of generosity, he challenged, he asked everyone in the congregation to take out their wallet back in the days when people carried wallets, and he said, uh, hand your wallet to the person next to you. <laughs> they were all supposed to do that. And then he said, now take the wallet you have and give like you've always wanted to give when the offering comes around. <laughs> and his point was, it's a lot easier to give when you don't think about something as your own, as belonging to you. And that's the point we see here in this text. Notice as well, this sharing was not required by God or the Holy Spirit. Nowhere do we see in this text, and the Holy Spirit told them they should do, no, not, not even the apostles said this. It seems to be voluntary, like it was a spontaneous movement. They just had a deep understanding that everything they owned was a gift, on loan from God, and that they saw themselves as managers of it, as stewards of the gift of God that really belonged to him. They shared because their desire to love one another and meet the needs that those others had was greater than their need to own their own possessions. So we see the way of sharing. And thirdly, in this text, we see the way of grace. Now back to my my free lunch from this week. Uh, what that anonymous Chapel Streeter, maybe I'll find out today who it was, I don't know, what that person gave me was not just a soup and sandwich. It was, and it was good. Um, not just the amount of money that, was on that, that, that that soup and sandwich cost. He gave me something greater than that. Well, one, he gave me a sermon story, but he gave me a little slice of grace. Just a little slice of grace. Verse 33, and with, the great, and with great power, the, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I want you to kind of notice the flow of thought here. Uh, with great power, now the Greek word translated great is mega, and we see that used even in, in, in our culture. The word translated power is dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite. So I like to think of it as him, them saying, with great power, with mega dynamite, now that's power, the apostles were giving their testimony. The word testimony is marturion, from which we get our word martyr. It means to bear witness to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. They were preaching the resurrection. They were preaching the gospel with great power. And this is the fulfillment of what Jesus promised in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which was the last thing he says before he ascends into heaven. He says, but you will receive power, same word, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, same word, in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And the result is 
great grace, mega grace, abundant grace was upon them all. I want to focus on this phrase, great grace was upon them all. Grace, the ancient Greek word was charis, means gift. And theologically, it means the gift of God's favor, the unmerited, undeserved favor of God. And it's right at the center of what we call the gospel. The most famous verse in the Bible, arguably, is John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave, that he gave his one and only Son. So Jesus, therefore, is the generosity of God. The gospel is the generosity of God. I think many of us struggle to grasp grace, to understand grace. We use the word a lot in church circles. It's a very biblical and Christian word, grace. But I think we struggle to understand and especially to experience grace. Pastor and author Tim Keller writes, The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. And I think we struggle on both sides of that equation. On the one hand, we struggle to see, we struggle to admit just how broken and sinful we really are, each one of us. I think many, many people, even people in the church, think to themselves, well, I know, well, I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm, but I'm not a terrible person. I mean, I just need to clean up some of the edges of my life and, you know, be a better version of me. No. No. The Apostle Paul says you are dead. That without Christ, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. Spiritually dead. But I think we also struggle. And because we don't see our own sinfulness... We fail to see and experience the grace of Jesus and all its goodness and power. The Bible teaches us that by grace we are forgiven. By grace we are made new. By grace we are adopted as his children. In Ephesians 2 verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's by grace we each have spiritual gifts and the ability to serve others. 1 Peter 4, As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. The Apostle Paul wrote that it is grace that fuels and empowers all of the Christian life. 1 Corinthians 15. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me is, was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So grace is the gift of God through Jesus. Grace is the sustaining work of the Holy Spirit. Grace is that which empowers the Christian life. And Luke says that great grace, abundant grace, was upon them all. And it was this grace that produced what I'm calling the way of surrender, which is the fourth thing we see in this paragraph. Verse 34, And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, this was likely a fairly small percentage of this early group that actually owned lands and houses. Many of them weren't, were not that affluent. 
but sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now I notice three things here about their generosity. First, their generosity was both collective and personal. Look, Luke says that as many as were owners sold lands and houses. I have long believed that generosity is contagious in a way. That this was a communal expression of generosity. It was a community element to it. Like, let's get this done. There's need. We can step up. Let's get, get, get this done together. And then he mentions one individual specifically, Barnabas. And he tells us a lot about Barnabas. That his name was Joseph. They nicknamed him Barnabas, son of encouragement. That he came from another place, from Cyprus. That he was a Levite and told us exactly what he did. He sold a field. And then he brought the money. So it was both collective and it was personal. The second thing I noticed is that their generosity was genuine. It was genuine. There's no sense at all that any of these early believers, any of these followers of the way, were told they had now to be generous. They weren't pressured into being generous. Nobody made them feel guilty if they weren't generous. Their generosity was genuine. It was willing. It was joyful. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul writes about this. He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves the cheerful giver. So where does generosity begin here according to the Apostle Paul? Does it begin with your bank account? Now, if you have enough in your bank account, then you can be generous. Nope. Does it begin with your investment portfolio? <coughs> Excuse me. Nope. Where does it begin? It begins in your hearts. And where does the Holy Spirit dwell? Where does the grace of the Holy Spirit do its work? In our hearts. Their generosity was genuine because it came from the heart. And the third thing I noticed is that their generosity was also sacrificial. Twice we see examples of people selling land, houses, assets that they owned, and then this curious phrase, they laid the money at the apostles' feet. It's a very interesting phrase. And to me, it's kind of a picture of surrender. It's a picture of surrender. The giver is saying, this that I bring is not mine. I have no hold over it. It has no hold over me. I lay it down. I lay it down at the apostles' feet. Not, it wasn't for the apostles. They didn't get to keep it. It was for God to use in any way he saw fit. It's an act of generosity, but it's an act of surrender. Now, later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul does teach that generosity is also obedience, that generosity is intentional, and that we are to grow more and more generous as we follow Christ. Several years ago, I got to know a couple here at Chapel Street um, who uh, told me their story, and they since have moved to a different state. But the husband shared with me that they um, met each other in college and got married toward the end of college, um, and then became believers subsequent to their marriage. 
And when they were brand new believers, they, their faith was starting to grow. They were learning about uh, what it means to be generous and so forth. And so they decided early in their marriage that they were going to uh, be generous people, that God wanted them to be generous. So they decided to give 10% of their, of their total income, which is extraordinary. Really, it is. A, a 10% is it's extraordinary in our culture, but they did that. And then, year by year, they said they felt compelled just in prayer and, and thinking about things to extend their generosity by 1% each year. So the second year, it was 11%, then it went to 12%, then it went to 13%. And then he told me, I asked him, okay, when was that? How long have you done that? He said, for about 30 years. But notice, none of this movement that we're reading about in Acts uh, that what called, could be called radical and spontaneous generosity happened because of guilt or happened because of manipulation in some way. The response was simply to great grace. Great grace was upon them all, and the result was the spontaneous, sacrificial, genuine, joyful generosity. It was the power of the gospel at work and the work of the Holy Spirit. Again, the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 9 And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. As most of you know, I think, or remember, back in August, I made a nine-day trip to, uh, with one of our mission partners called the Timothy Initiative to Dubai in the Middle East and to Nepal in Asia. Uh, we spent three days in Dubai at a conference for church leaders uh, who all came to Dubai from Africa, Asia, the Middle East, about 250 uh, church leaders. And after our three-day conference in Dubai, we traveled to Nepal. Uh, some of us traveled to Nepal to actually see church planting on the ground uh, see what's happening in that part of the world. And actually, this one organization is training 14,000 church planters right now in Nepal, where it's actually illegal to try to lead someone to faith in Christ. Amazing. Now, some of you know, Dubai is one of the richest places on the face of the earth. Uh, the buildings are fabulous. This, of course, is the Burj Khalifa, which is the tallest building in the world. I, th- I think I showed a picture of it a few weeks ago. 160 stories tall. It's 1,000 feet taller than the Willis Tower in Chicago over a half a mile tall. This is a 75-story building that looks like it was was twisted. In Dubai, they build stuff just because they can sometimes. This is a 25-story building, a hotel, that's built in the shape of a crescent moon. That's a real thing. You can see it in Dubai. And the hotels are amazing. We stayed in a hotel called the Intercontinental Dubai Festival City. That was the hotel we stayed at in Dubai. It had... um, Marble pillars in the lobby. It had multiple pools with palm trees, suffering at a relatively high level. You guys didn't get that, did you? (laughs) Suffering at a relatively high level. Rooms uh, at that hotel were between two and three hundred dollars a night. Nepal, on the other hand, as some of you might know, is the poorest country in Asia, the twelfth poorest country in the whole world. Minimum wage in Nepal is 123 U.S. dollars a month. Many of the new believers in Nepal live on far less than that. But while we were there um, in Nepal, after we had left Dubai, the leader of the ministry told me over dinner that 
all of the hotel rooms in that fancy hotel in Dubai for all 250 people from around the world who were there were paid for by the churches of Nepal. I said, wait, 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 what? He said, yeah, the, the, Nepalese, the, Nepalese church, the Nepali churches paid for all those hotel rooms. I said, how? Why? And he explained to me that they just wanted to. They spent months preparing, collecting offerings. They just wanted to. I think it's because they were one of, of one heart and one soul. I think it's because they don't think of anything they have as being their own. But most of all, I think it's because they know and have experienced great grace. And great grace was upon them all. The grace of Jesus who loved them, died for them, saved them, and lives in them. And so I know when it comes to generosity, it's very typical that we all have a reaction like, yeah, you know, I, I really could be more generous. I really should be more generous. But what I think the Holy Spirit is saying to all of us is, no, 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 no. Don't, don't start there. Don't start by, by trying to make yourself get more generous. Because that's not where it starts. I think the Holy Spirit says, ask to know and experience the great grace of Jesus in your heart. And the generosity takes care of itself. Great grace. Genuine generosity, joyful generosity, great generosity is the product, is only the product of great grace. You bow with me as I close. Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you for this beautiful picture of our spiritual ancestors, people of the way. We responded to your great grace with genuine and joyful generosity. May we, too, become more and more aware of the work of your Spirit, of your great grace in our hearts, and may this grace set us free to become more and more generous. May we, too, be people of the way. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. And Before our benediction this morning, I want to remind you that we have people up front to be able to pray with you. I've been told that it's been a while since they've had any customers. So if you'd like to pray with someone or have just be prayed for, I encourage you to come forward at the end, and I know they would love to do that. Now let's hear our benediction for this morning. May we go now in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, for our sakes became poor, that by his poverty we might become rich. Amen. Thank you.